Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, if we've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here. Welcome. So glad you're here, especially those of you who are new or newer to our community. David already mentioned, you know, maybe you were invited during Christmas Eve services and you're like, oh, I, you know, those were nice people. And you're back. We're so, so thrilled you're here. And you guys, 2023, here we are. What the heck? Sound, it just sounds so familiar, like futuristic, 2023. It's so wild. So let's begin the new year together as most Americans do on most years by staring at a photograph of Michael Phelps on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated magazine. Michael Phelps, everybody. Everyone knows Michael Phelps. Uh, probably widely considered the greatest swimmer of all time. Many, if not most people, think that he's like the greatest Olympian of all times. What the numbers tell us, if you just base it on the numbers, he is the greatest Olympian of all time. He has won more individual Olympic medals than any other individual in Olympic, modern Olympic history. 28 medals. Here's a screenshot of, from Wikipedia of all of his Olympic medals. He's won 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals. My assumption is that he's thrown the bronze medals away, right? <laughs> it was like unbelievable. Now, I share about Michael Phelps with you, very random, I understand, but I, I share a bit about Michael Phelps with you because I want us to consider for a moment the level of discipline and resolve and resilience in addition to all of the physical skill. But think about all of the discipline, resolve, and resilience that is necessary to achieve the level of athletic peak that Michael Phelps has achieved in his life. I mean, I think it's safe to assume none of us are uh, Olympic gold medalists. Although, has anybody in the room won an Olympic gold-like medal? Has anyone competed in the Olympics? I'm being serious right now. Anybody? No? Okay. That's disappointing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I figured that would be the case, but I held, during this week as I was prepping the teaching, I held like a I held out hope, like 2% chance. What if we have an Olympian at our church? That'd be amazing. Okay, but um, none of you are Olympians. Okay, neither am I. That's okay. But here's the thing. Even though none of us are Olympic athletes, some of us, what I do know is there are actually some of us in the room who are high, high level athletes. We've got San Jose State University athletes in the room. Uh, as a part of our church community, we've had like San Jose Sharks as a part of our church community. So like I know, and some of you, even if you never played collegiately or professionally, some of you know what it's like to compete at a high level athletically or physically in some sort of way. So I want you to think about this. Think about how much, dis again, discipline, resolve, resilience it takes to achieve a high level of um, athletic performance or any sort of performance. Now, I share that with you because I'm going to show you a different photo of Michael Phelps. This is a photograph of Michael Phelps, a screenshot of him in September of 2014, about 3 o'clock in the morning in the Baltimore Police Department because Michael Phelps was pulled over for a DUI. Now, I share this photo with you not to judge Michael Phelps. This is not the only time he was arrested. Some of you know his story, Michael Phelps has had several very public falls from grace. But again, I don't share this with you 
to judge Michael Phelps or indict Michael Phelps. Here's the deal. Michael Phelps is just a very public figure. The reality is I've got stuff in my past. Many, if not most of us in this room, have stuff in our past too, that if we put a screenshot of it on the screen, we would be, I would be mortified and embarrassed. I only share this part of Michael Phelps' story with you because I want to ask the question, how does this happen? How does somebody who has so much discipline, so much resolve, so much resilience that they can win 28 Olympic medals, how does someone with that sort of discipline, resolve, and resilience at the same time make the sort of silly, stupid mistakes that I make in my own life? How does that happen? There's a psychologist at the University of Michigan. His name's Scott Goldman. He's actually spent many years studying people like Michael Phelps. He studied Michael Phelps directly, his psychology, and he studied a number of high-level athletes. And in one of his peer-reviewed papers, he says this. Think about the roller coaster ride prior to the Olympics and just how fast and hectic that mad dash is. This 100-mile-per-hour ride comes to a screeching halt the, the second the Olympics are over, and the athletes are just exhausted. It was such an onslaught to their system, and when it's all said and done, they are depleted. This is how it happens. In the lives of high-level, world-class Olympic athletes, and in my life, this is how it happens. I break down and make decisions that I would otherwise not make, often because I am so exhausted and depleted. Most of us are not Olympic athletes. I mean, that's not conjecture, I know, because I just asked. None of you are Olympic athletes, neither am I. But right now, it's really interesting. Typically, when you hit a new year, there's this sort of like collective cultural energy on most years. It's like, oh my gosh, new year, new me, new hopes, new dreams, right? We're going to do it. And excitement, and I think there is some of that, but it's been really unique. In the last couple of years, this year included, every time we get to January, I sense mingled in with the hope and anticipation of what the new year might look like, there is also amongst us a sort of weariness. Is there not? You feel it, right? Maybe not all of us, but many of us. We carry a sort of heaviness upon our shoulders, a sort of burden, a tiredness. We are depleted. And some of it might be because the last few years have been so uniquely challenging. Some of it might just be the, the sort of very unique personal circumstances and situations that you were navigating. But I think what is collectively true, generally speaking, is that yes, we are excited for the year to come, but we're also quite tired. We're depleted. We're exhausted. We're weary. So the question is, what do we do? What can we do? There's a recent survey by One Poll and Pew Research. They found that, um, this is just a few months ago, they found that 60% of American adults, 60% say that they are more tired now than they've ever been in their entire lives. 58% of Americans say that they feel unfocused or disjointed almost all the time. Maybe you can relate. I share some of that data with you only to say you're not alone. You're not alone. So again, what can we do? First, uh, we can rest, and we have to rest. And by rest, I don't mean like meaningless leisure. 
right? Um, Jenny and I uh, recently started watching um, Andor. Has anybody seen Andor? People have talked so much about it. So we started watching it. Jenny loves it. I'm like, it's okay. (laughs) It's all right. Some of you hate me that I just said that. But um, anyways, we've been watching it. And uh, um, we sort of have been binge watching it, you know, watching like two, three episodes a night. So we're almost done. And uh, that's fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it is not that is not biblical rest. Rest is something much deeper. So I share that with you to say, in our depletion, in our exhaustion, in our weariness, some of what we need is rest. Not meaningless leisure, but deep rest with the Lord. So all of that to say, I want to just practically, I want to invite you to something. At the end of this month, on Saturday, January 28th, right here at Westgate Saratoga, uh, we're going to have sort of a new annual tradition that we've been doing a couple of years running called the Reset Conference. And we'll gather, all of us collectively, there's childcare and stuff for those of you who have kids. We'll gather from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. And a dear friend of mine named Glenn Packiam, who's the lead pastor at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa, the author of several books. Um, his most recent book is called The Intentional Year. It's about creating rhythms in your life to find rest in God and wholeness. Um, he's going to be here, and he's going to teach on rest And so I would invite you to do that because in our weariness and exhaustion, a bit of what, maybe a lot of what we need is rest. But aside from rest, there's something else we need. And for the next three weeks, you and I together are going to explore the other side of the coin when it comes to um, our depletion and our exhaustion, division, distraction, uh, which is resilience. What we need is resilience. And not just resilience that you can muster in and of yourself, of your own strength, but the sort of God-given resilience that really changes things, that really transforms things. Now, in a place like Silicon Valley, what I've come to believe through my own experience and through hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations with men and women just like you over my several years as a pastor, what I've come to believe is that in a place like this place, One of, not the only, but one of the key reasons why we feel so depleted, so exhausted, is the relentless pace of achievement culture. We are constantly running, constantly moving, constantly doing, constantly achieving and accumulating. And we feel like we have to. This isn't just with career, although it certainly applies to career. This is with everything, relationships, friendships, romance, marriage, kids, um, your own sort of internal processing of stuff, thoughts and ideas and feelings that might be inside of you. There's this constant pull that you've got to do more and be better. That's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing, but but the constant chasing leaves us weary. It leaves us exhausted. And in a culture as fast moving and progress oriented as ours, Falling behind is akin to falling off of a cliff. So we fear falling behind in any number of ways. And so by fear, we are motivated to keep on chasing. Let me just ask a rhetorical question. How many of us in the past year have felt behind in some form or fashion? I said rhetorical question and yet so many hands because it is so true, right? It's so true. If I, if I didn't say rhetorical question, every hand in this room would have gone up, I think. We all feel behind. 
Now, sidebar, let that also be an encouragement to you. Everyone feels behind, not just you. Not just you. You're not alone. Now, in the ancient world of the New Testament, there was a city with a very similar fast-moving, progress-oriented ethos as the Silicon Valley. Um, And it was a city called Corinth. I'll show you an artist's rendition of what first century Corinth might have looked like. You can see just from this very basic artistic rendition that it was a large city. It was very well put together, well designed with a large coliseum, semi-large coliseum for that day. And because of its geographic location, it's between the Aegean and Adriatic Seas, because of its geographic location, Corinth in the first century was a very profitable trade center that connected the eastern and the western Mediterranean worlds. What that means is that there was a lot of business, a lot of commerce, a lot of money that shuffled in and out of Corinth. Should sound familiar to us. Now, here's another thing about Corinth. It had been a thriving Greek city for many centuries, and then in the year 146 BC, the city was destroyed. And 100 years later, in the year 46 BC, Rome... The the Roman Empire recolonized Corinth. And when the emperor at the time, Julius Caesar, recolonized and rebuilt Corinth to its former glory, they took a very specific approach. They populated the city with Corinth with a, a group of people, like hundreds, thousands of people, known as freed persons, freed persons. Now, a freed person in the ancient world was not a free person, It was a freed person. Freed persons were individuals and families who had once been slaves, who had somehow, through hard work and good fortune, found their way to freedom. They had earned their freedom. These were the people, the movers and shakers, who hustled their way out of slavery into freedom. And when when the Roman Empire reestablishes Corinth, they fill the city with freed persons, former slaves who had now earned their freedom. What that did was it created a very particular sort of culture and value and ethos in Corinth. Corinth was one of the few cities in the ancient world in the first century that prided itself on the opportunity it afforded its citizens to climb the social ladder. There actually were not a lot of cities in the ancient first century world where people had an opportunity to make more of their lives. In most of the known world in the first century, you were born into a particular um, uh, social strata and that's where you were forever. But in a city like Corinth, you didn't have to stay there. You could work hard, you could chase after success, and you could climb the ladder. In Corinth, essentially, you could make it. Because of this, first century Corinth was a pressure cooker. Everybody was climbing, even if it meant stepping on others to get one rung higher on the ladder. Again, does this sound familiar? In Corinth, if you weren't climbing, you were falling. Corinth would have loved the words of the famous words of the great American Ricky Bobby, who said, if you ain't first, you're last. This is Corinth. And into this context, a progress-oriented, fast-moving culture where everyone's trying to make it, 
resulting in a population full of exhausted and depleted people, constantly chasing, never arriving. Into that context, similar to the Silicon Valley, Paul writes these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. I believe Paul's words here, written amid a depleted, exhausted culture, they offer us a blueprint for cultivating resilience in our own lives in the midst of our exhausted, depleted, weary world. A couple of thoughts. First, I have come to believe that one of the best ways to cultivate resilience through the depletion and exhaustion you face is to recognize that life is a gift hidden in the ordinary. If you want to get through whatever obstacle, whatever challenge, whatever weariness, exhaustion, or depletion you are facing, you must, I have come to believe, you and I must live day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, embracing that often forgotten reality, that life is a gift often hidden in the ordinary. What does Paul say? We have this treasure in what? Jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That phrase, jars of clay, is not just the name of a 90s emo Christian band, right? It is actually from the scriptures, jars of clay. In the Greco-Roman world at the time, it was extremely common practice for people to hide their most valuable possessions in cheap clay jars. They did this because cheap archaeology has shown cheap clay jars were everywhere and they were cheap and everyone had them and nobody would assume there was something valuable in it and so cheap clay jars at the time were like their version of safety deposit boxes people would take the things that were worth the most the most valuable treasured treasured items in their lives and they would place them in the cheapest of substances clay jars and this paul uses that imagery to describe the reality that life is a gift and it is hidden in the broken ordinary mess of your everyday existence Life is a gift from God, but when we are depleted, when we're exhausted, when we're tired, it is hard to see past the ragged outer shell of our ordinary exhausting days and to recognize the treasure that is the very next breath you take. The very next breath you take is a gift from God. It is so easy to forget that. But remember it, and you will, you will develop, I promise you, you will develop a sort of resilience that can withstand the challenges that come your way. There's this um, Catholic writer named Ronald Rollheiser, and he's got this thin little book called Domestic Monastery. And essentially what he does in the book is he takes the sort of ancient monastery life, you know, where monks go live basically the entirety of their lives in these um, in these groups, in these beautiful monasteries. And they, I don't know if you know much about monastery life, but it is super mundane. 
it's like, it's really ordinary. Monks do the same thing every day. They wake up for morning prayer, the bell rings, the prayer bell rings, and they pray. They eat their breakfast in silence. They read. They go on a walk. The prayer bell, mid-morning prayer bell rings. They pray. And sometimes the prayers are like the same exact prayers. And in this book, Domestic Monastery, which is really about the spirituality of the home, in one short little section, he's talking about stay-at-home parents. And I know not all of us are parents, but I think you'll all get the point here. He's talking specifically about stay-at-home parents. And he starts talking about how when you have little children, it's like same time every day, right around 1, 1.30, post-lunch, pre-nap, there's the meltdown. You know, and every parent knows, like, the meltdown's coming. That my kid's just going to melt down, start crying, throwing a fit, throwing his toys, whatever, right? Because he's tired, whatever. And um, Rollheiser says in the book, he says, when you hear the daily rhythm of the 130 meltdown, hear that as a prayer bell calling you to pray. Pray for the gift that is this life which you have been given to steward. This applies to almost everything. When you get the ding on Monday morning because you open up the laptop and you've got 422 emails, hear it as a prayer bell. You have a job. Like, you can pay your bills. You, most of you, don't worry about what you're going to have for lunch or if you're going to have lunch. And pray. Life is a gift hidden in the ordinary. This is really challenging, I think, especially today because of social media, right? On most days, we open our Instagram. Like the last two weeks, I've been opening my Instagram, and I've been watching my, my friends right here, Rachel and Jono and some of their friends on this, like, jaunt thwart, thwart, um, through Vietnam. Did you guys just get back, by the way? Today? And you came to church? Oh, my goodness, you guys really love the Lord. That's incredible. <laughs> and I sit in my office, you know, like praying or whatever. That's not true. <laughs> I'm trying to like over-spiritualize. I sit there praying eight hours a day. No, I'm like sitting in my office, whatever, sending an email, and then I open Instagram, and there's Jono and Rachel and their friends just adventuring through Vietnam. And sometimes at my worst, what I think to myself is, why aren't I adventuring through Vietnam? <laughs> what, what I know intellectually is like, that's not their life. Here they are right back here. And tomorrow they're going to go back to work and just, you know what I'm saying? This happens all the time. We compare others' glossy highlights to like the mundane ordinariness of our real lived lives. There's a writer named Angela Duckworth who a few years ago wrote a fantastic, not a Christian book, it's a fantastic book called Grit. And in it, she's got this incredible line. She says, nobody wants to show you the hours and hours of becoming. They'd rather show you the highlight of what they've become. If you want to live with resilience, stop comparing and receive the gift of the ordinary as a gift. No matter how mundane, how plain it seems, here you are. Your heart is beating. Your lungs are breathing. You are alive. You can think. You can move and be about your life. That is a gift, undeserved and unearned. Do that and develop resilience. We cultivate resilience by resisting the allure of highlights and embracing the hidden treasure 
within the ordinary rhythms of the one life we've been given. Second, I think Paul's words here are profound. We develop resilience by accepting suffering, denying despair, and choosing meaning. What does he say? 2 Corinthians 4. We are hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. You know, people have this misconception about Christians, that Christians are, in the words of the band REM, just happy, shiny people. They just walk around with fake smiles on our faces, and it's like, oh, yeah, I have Jesus, no problems, everything's good. If you read the Bible, what you will discover is that the Christian faith I've come to believe is the most honest, most sober assessment of the ups and the downs of human experience in literary history. Whatever you believe or don't believe about God or Jesus or whatever, if you read just if you read the Bible for, for all it is, not just select verses, but read the entire scriptures, it is the most honest piece of literature in human history. It is full of, yes, high highs, but the lowest of lows. There are biblical authors who go to God and they say, God, why was I born? This is pointless. The biblical authors say things that you and I are too afraid to say. Paul doesn't deny that life is hard. What does he say? He says, we're hard pressed on every side. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We feel struck down. It is hard. It's not easy. But the way of Jesus gives meaning to our suffering, which then turns and flips suffering upside down. There was uh, the great 20th century Jewish psychologist, Viktor Frankl, in his fantastic book, Man's Search for Meaning, he has this famous line, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. Some of you know this. Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, was his psychological reflection on his experience as a prisoner in Auschwitz. Whatever you are suffering, Frankel saw the worst of it. And he came out on the other side and said, listen, there is the possibility that the worst sort of suffering can be infused with meaning. And once it is, it's no longer suffering. So if you want to develop resilience, if you want to experience God-given, Christ-fueled resilience in your life, you have to begin to ask the question of the suffering, the hardship in your life, in one particular way. I think that there are two specific ways that you can ask the question, why am I suffering? Inward and outward. The inward way to ask, why am I suffering, is essentially to ask, why is this happening to me? Um, Steve Clifford has taught on this quite a bit here at our church. And, what, and he, if you know his story, he has been through the worst of it. And what Steve will tell you is that figuring out why something is happening to you doesn't relieve the pain of the thing happening to you. In fact, he would tell you it leads to more despair. It leads to deeper feelings of abandonment. Instead, we can ask the question, why? am I suffering? Not why am I suffering, but why am I suffering? In other words, to ask the question outwardly and say, how might this suffering, this hardship, this struggle, this pain, how might it bring God glory and bring good to others? 
at the risk of sort of repeating myself, you know, we invite people here at our church to always, all the time, repetitively, we invite you to take a next step into the life of our community. One of the ways, out of many ways, to do that is to jump into a life group. You hear us talk about that all the time. It's not primarily because we just want more and more people in life groups. It is because one of the many ways in which doing life with others can change your life and transform your life is you are able to bear the weight of your suffering with one another. And I have found in my own life group, as I get together with the guys in my life group and we share our struggles in parenting and as men and with work and our own internal stuff, we share some of this stuff with one another. I, I seriously, I experience consistently a lightening of the burden. And I remember, I realize, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one going through this. And sometimes my friend in my life group shares a struggle that God brought him through. And what it does for me is it gives me hope. Oh, I'm going through that. There is light at the end of the tunnel. This is why for today and the next few weeks, you're gonna hear us talk about next steps, to take a next step. So I would encourage you, I'll show you a slide here. There's so many different ways to take a next step. You saw in our lobby today, there's a whole next steps area. When, you, when we're done with this service here, I would encourage you, if all you do at Westgate is show up for 70 minutes on a Sunday, I would encourage and implore you, go to the next steps table and just find out more. Because doing life with others is, is one of the ways in which God can infuse our hardship, our struggle, our pain with meaning. And that builds resilience in us. You see it in Paul's own life. In another one of his letters, he writes to the church in Philippi, a city called Philippi, the Philippian Christians. And when he writes the letter to the Philippians, he actually writes while he's imprisoned. He's under house arrest. He's a prisoner. He's suffering. And he says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is a prisoner. He is suffering. He is exhausted and depleted. And yet he does not despair in his suffering. He finds meaning in it and he focuses it outward for the sake of the gospel, for God's glory, and for the good of others, which leads him to remarkable resilience, which you see at the end of the letter to the Philippians when he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Would, wouldn't you love to be able to say that honestly? I would. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is also why in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. Yeah, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We cultivate Christian resilience by living outward in the midst of suffering and hardship, choosing sacrifice over self-preservation. And then Paul concludes, 
Therefore, in light of all of this, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In the upside-down, inside-out kingdom of God, what looks like decay on the outside can become renewal on the inside of your life. What feels heavy and forever in your life right now is actually light and temporary. And there is an eternal glory that far outweighs whatever obstacle you face today. And knowing that, you can take another step and another step after that, and another step after that. You can live with Christ-centered resilience. There's this famous story about um, an 8th century general named Tariq Ziyad. Uh, Tariq Ziyad was like this legendary 8th century military general who led the Arabic armies of North Africa. And in the year 711, Tariq Ziyad takes 7,000 soldiers, and he crosses the channel from North Africa in, a sh in ships. They cross the water from North Africa into modern-day Spain. And they go to modern-day Spain to conquer the land. But when they land on the shores of Spain, the 7,000 soldiers are met with 100,000 enemies. 100,000 enemy troops. 7,000 against 100,000. Impossible, insurmountable odds. Now, the reason I know and many people know Tariq Ziyad's story is because against all odds, Tariq Ziyad leads his 7,000 men to victory over 100,000 enemy troops. Now, what's most well-known about this story and has been written about countless times throughout history is that supposedly, before they went into battle, as they stood on the shore and saw the endless mass of 100,000 enemy troops facing down 7,000 of them, Tariq Ziyad gave a short speech. And he ended the speech this way. My warriors, where would you flee? Behind you is the sea, before you, the enemy. You have left now only the hope of your courage and your constancy. Which reminds me of the story in John chapter 6, when Jesus has all of these followers, and then he begins to predict his own death. And then the followers are so confused. They're like, Jesus, I thought you came to overthrow Rome and win victory and reestablish Israel as like the global empire of the day. Like, what is this about you dying? And a bunch of them leave. The story says, from this time, many of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, his closest friends. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? All we have left is the hope of our courage and our constancy. Not in our own ability, but in Jesus, our King, who is with us and goes before us. 
Many of us are depleted, exhausted by the constant chasing after the highs and the utter depths of the lows and the long mundane stretches of ordinary plateaus. But whatever obstacle stands before you, whatever hardship you face, whatever struggle you can't shake, whatever pain you carry, whatever uncertainty weighs on you today, what you have left is your courage and your constancy and the hope of Christ in whom all things are possible. And so two takeaways for us this week. I want to invite you to practice these two things, simple but difficult, Practice these two things to develop Christian resilience. This week, focus on gratitude by choosing one gift from your life, one gift from God in your life, and meditate on it, appreciate it, and thank God for it every single day. And if you want to, you feel free to take out your phone and snap a photo of this, or you can email us and we'll send this to you. Or I don't know if Les is in here. Les, maybe we can post this on our social media or something even though I bashed social media 30 minutes ago. (laughs) Follow us on Instagram. Okay, so this week, focus on gratitude by choosing one gift from God in your life, whatever it might be. It might be a relationship. It might be the fact that you have a job or that you have good health or maybe God, you know, provided for you in some unique way recently. Focus on that one gift. Meditate on it, appreciate it, and thank God for it every day. Thank God for it, even the most mundane thing. Thank God for it every day. And this week, focus on meaning by considering one hardship in your life and asking the question, how might this hardship bring God glory and bring good to others? I know this isn't easy to do, but ask yourself that question. How might this hardship, how might this struggle bring God glory somehow, some way, and bring good to others? Maybe it'll be comfort. Maybe it'll be empathy. I don't know. In the midst of it all, remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. Do not lose heart. Christ is with you. He is for you. And he goes before you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your strength in the midst of our struggle. We thank you, Jesus, that you are truly with us and for us and that you go before us. We pray for courage this week as we face down whatever struggle, whatever hardship, whatever suffering, whatever pain we may face. Give us resilience, the sort of resilience that comes from you and you alone. Give us the courage to follow every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, We're going to continue in our service and we're going to have a little celebration uh, in our church family. So I'm going to invite David.